Our sermon text this morning is from the book of Genesis, chapter 11, verses 1 to 9. Genesis, chapter 11, verses 1 to 9. Um, You'll know the story or the narrative quite well. It's the Tower of Babel. Before we read that, we'll pray. Please join me in prayer. Our Father in heaven, as we, your people, sit now here under your words, the very words that you are speaking to us, We pray, Father, that we would be given humble and meek hearts which would receive your holy scriptures for that which they are, the very words of God. Father, may we be made obedient. May we be willing to hear, willing to serve. Father, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Genesis chapter 11, starting at verse 1. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do, and nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language, so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. Amen. May God bless his word to us. I just had a little, um, uh, you know, a little chuckle at myself because I said bitumen, and here in Australia we tend to say bitumen. The Lord confused the languages. People say things differently all over the world now. Bitumen, bitumen, for mortar. I'm sure you know what we mean. If there is um, a tendency throughout the world today and throughout human history, I would describe it as the tendency to run toward evil. The Apostle Paul speaks of this in, Genesis, in um, the book of Romans, chapter 3. Their feet are swift to run toward evil. When was the last time you heard of a crowd of people gathering to run toward someone doing something good? Think of a schoolyard, you know, a little isolated group of humanity. When someone in a schoolyard was, would share their lunch with another student who perhaps didn't have enough to eat? Would hundreds of kids come running? What's going on? Little Johnny's just shared his sandwich with little Billy who didn't quite have enough food. Is that what would happen in a schoolyard? I've never seen it. But I've seen this happen in a school. The crowd of kids comes running from every direction. What's going on? There's a fight! 
Billy's beating up Peter. A fight? Let's go. And everyone rushes from all directions. And if it's two girls fighting, which we used to call a cat fight, twice as many people come running. Why? I don't know. But it was just a fact. Two girls fighting was seen as more entertaining than two boys fighting. We ran toward evil. People tend to be united behind things that are not good. Thousands upon thousands of people will attend rock concerts or protests or rallies. How many people go rushing to attend church services? There was an evangelist in the 1700s. His name was George Whitfield. Now, I'll tell you, this is, um, this is something very unusual, okay? It doesn't happen an awful lot in the history of humanity. And there's an account written by a farmer of when George Whitfield came to preach in his county. It's in the USA. He was out in the fields ploughing, doing his regular day's farm work. And he noticed that the, that the road which runs past the edge of his farm, there's a cloud of dust. And so he draws over near the fence and catches the eye of the first person he can and says, what's happening? And someone yells back at him, Mr. Whitfield's in town and he's going to preach at one o'clock. What does he do? Unhitches the plough. Gets back to the farm, gets his wife, saddles the horse, puts her on the horse, starts running beside the horse, runs as far as he can, jumps up on the horse, rides for a while, then he jumps off the horse and he runs beside his horse. They get out on the road. He says the dust was so thick you could barely see 20 yards in front of you. Everybody in the district heard that Whitfield was preaching in town at one o'clock Everybody in the district dropped whatever they were doing and by whatever means they could, got on the road heading for town. It's called a revival. A genuine, God-sent, Holy Spirit-empowered revival. There's a lot of things these days called revivals and most of them are not, I'm certain of that. But this was what's called a revival. It was part of what's called, if you're looking at it in church history, it's called the Great Awakening. Thousands of people had a hunger for the gospel. You see, it wasn't Whitfield who was calling these people. It was God, the Holy Spirit. And people came rushing from miles around to get to the centre of town in the hope that they could hear this preacher present the gospel. But that's not the nature of humanity when God leaves people, as it were, to their own devices. They don't run to the word of God. They run away from the word of God. They don't run toward salvation. They run toward sin. And our passage before us this morning basically gives us the set model, the set model for human relationships with God in national terms from this time forward. We have unity. Verse 1, now the whole earth had one language 
and the same words. Unity. No separation of language. No misunderstandings. You wanted to speak to everyone, you only had to open your mouth loud enough. Unity. We're constantly told that unity is a good thing. There's um, an increasing amount of pressure on people coming through the media to submit to the current raft of COVID regulations. Wearing a mask, checking in everywhere you go, etc., etc., etc. Now, and I'll add another thing. Have you noticed people announcing righteously on Facebook? I love my neighbour, therefore I've had the vaccination. It's all part of the pressure. Conform, fit in. Everybody's doing the same thing. If you're not doing the same thing, what's wrong with you? The whole earth had one language and the same words. Reading on, and as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. Now, is there a problem with this? Well, there is. Remember what God had to say back at Genesis chapter 9, verse 1. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And it's repeated at verse 7. And you be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. Noah and his sons were being sent out. Fill the earth. Keep travelling. Everywhere you go, just keep going. Keep moving. Fill the earth. Fill the earth with people. But here we have these people, the offspring of Noah and his sons, united in one language. They found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. Basically, for whatever reason, it's good land. The soil's good. There's water. There are the things we need here. We can set ourselves up here. There's nothing to fear if we're all gathered together in one group. Why fill the whole earth when this part of the earth looks just fine? Why bother going any further? We've found it. We're there. This will do. Let's set up. And so we find it, verse 3, and they said one to another, or they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. It, I mean, it literally says, come, let us brick bricks. We'd probably say something like brick up with bricks or some such thing. Brick bricks, come, let us make bricks, burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Asphalt, pits, bubbling, oozing stuff. They found a way to mix it with sand. I think the King James says they had slime. They had slime. Their thinking here is um, not only will we not use the rocks as we find them, but we're going to do it the man-made way. Verse 4. Then they said, come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. 
Now, don't think that their plan was that the tower had to reach a certain height to reach to heaven. If you're going to build a tower a certain height to reach to heaven, you'd start from the top of the highest mountain. You know, you might as well get yourself a two, three, four thousand metre head start. The reaching to heaven is not so much the tower reaching to heaven, but men feeling that by building this monument, this structure, they themselves could reach to heaven. It's man-made religion that we're looking at here. Come, let us build a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves because we don't want to be dispersed lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. We want to be united. We want to be one. We want to be shoulder to shoulder. This place will do. It's good enough. And we can have our own religion. This is rebellion. This is a refusal to obey God. This is the desire of humanity to be justified in the sight of God by means of its own works. Let us make a name for ourselves. Let us make a name for ourselves. It's almost the exact opposite of the words of a servant of God. Can you think of whom I'm thinking of? There was a man named John the Baptist and he was told that Jesus was drawing great crowds and your ministry seems to be shrinking. What was John's reply? He must increase and I must decrease. He must increase and I must decrease. Now think of what they're saying. Let us make a name for ourselves. I must increase. We must increase and we don't care if someone else decreases. Let us make a name for ourselves. Lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Humanity wanting to make a name for itself. Humanity wanting to um, impose its will, as it were, upon creation. Humanity wanting to name itself. And we're not just talking about names. You know, naming in our culture, it's, it's sort of parents like a particular name. They may not necessarily pick it for any particular meaning. I just like the sound of that name and that's why I chose it. Make a name. Make ourselves known. Make ourselves famous. Remember, it was about this time we looked at it last week that Nimrod began to be a mighty hunter before the Lord. And that it was Nimrod and his descendants who had something to do with the construction of this city called Babel. And it was Nimrod who founded a kingdom. Nimrod's got a name. He's a mighty hunter. We, the people of Nimrod, we need a name. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Lest we um, become average, lest we become unimportant. 
After all, everybody has to be noticed, don't they? And everybody should be famous and everybody should be part of something big and everybody should have a special name. There's a couple of interesting little things here and I point them out now. Notice uh, verse 3, the phrase, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. People, unite, come. Come together as one. We can do this great and mighty work. Verse 4, come. People, unite, come. Let us build for ourselves a city and a tower. Come on, we can do it. We can do it. You know, we're all in this together. Where have you heard that lately? We're all in this together. Verse 5. And the Lord, Yahweh, came down. (laughs) Everybody come on. Everybody unite. Everybody come here. (laughs) I don't know that they were thinking that God himself was going to, as it were, hear the call. And Yahweh came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. So you've got this gathering of people, thousands of people, a kingdom, a great king. They're unified. They feel that they're doing a great and mighty work. Come on, come on. Everybody get together. Everybody work together. Everybody shoulder to shoulder. We can do this. We're united. We are one. And, you know, Moses is giving us a bit of a sort of a picture here. He wants us to sort of see this as kind of funny. Somehow or other, word of this, yeah. I'm trying to get into the into the picture here. I'm trying to get into the into the funniness of it. I'm not at this moment giving you a lecture on the attributes of God. All knowing, all seeing, etc., etc. I'm trying to get into the way Moses wants us to see this. Somehow or other, word of this undertaking by these people got to God in his throne room in heaven. You know, a messenger came in, sort of said to Yahweh, A messenger angel came in and said to Yahweh, the people have united and they're building a city to make a name for themselves. And they've set up their own religion and they claim that this religion will get them to heaven. And Moses wants us to have this picture in our mind of King Yahweh going, they're what? They think they're doing what? They're building a city and a great tower and, they, and they've got their own religion and they think they're going to reach heaven. And Moses wants us to have in our mind the picture of this great king going, oh, I think I can see it. I, th- I think there's something going on down there. Let's go and have a closer look. Could be entertaining. And so Yahweh came down. He took a trip, an excursion. I heard that something's going on. I thought I'd come and have a bit of a look. 
Yahweh came down. In Genesis chapter 18, you've got the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah on the plain. They're seeking to make a name for themselves. They're hostile to all visitors. They don't treat outsiders well. And in Genesis chapter 18, verse 21, the angel of the Lord says to Abraham, I will go down to see whether whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. I'll go down and take a look. I'll investigate. That's not actually a good place to be in Scripture. When the Lord comes to investigate, the Lord comes down to take a look. Trouble's on the way. You know, things are going to go sideways. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do, and nothing that they propose to do now will be impossible for them. Behold, they have unity. Behold, the people are as one. Behold, they're all in agreement. Now who says come? Twice the man, twice mankind says come. Verse 3, come let us make bricks. Verse 4, come let us build ourselves. Verse 7, Yahweh, come let us go down there. Sorry, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. Come, let us go down. Who's he speaking to there? Well, I've already pointed out later on in the book of Genesis, at Genesis chapter 18, dealing with the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, it was the angel of the Lord and two other angels. The angel of the Lord being, it is generally accepted, the Lord himself and two other angels. So I'd suggest that he, the come let us go down, is Yahweh speaking to his most mighty, powerful and closely um, aligned angels, those angels who are in his presence. Come, let us go down there and confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. Think about that. Interesting. When Moses complained to God that uh, he wasn't the right person to be sent down to the Israelites, what was his complaint? I'm not a very good speaker. I've got a thick tongue, troubles. I don't speak well. And what did God say to Moses? Who created the tongue? Who created language? Who gave the gift of language? I did. I'm God. Language comes from God. Some famous people in, in the world, J.R.R. Tolkien or C.S. Lewis, were convinced by language itself that language must have been created by God. They were professionals in language. They were professors of language. And notice how easy it is for God to confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. 
God said, let there be many languages. And there were many languages. It was as easy as that. And let them not understand one another. And it was as easy as that. In a C.S. Lewis book called This Hideous Strength, at a meeting of some very, very evil people, they were cursed with the curse of Babel. And it got to the point where they could no longer communicate with each other. And in their confusion, some killed themselves, some killed others. Basically, destruction and mayhem fell upon them. And their evil schemes and plans, they came to nothing. Behold, they are one people and they have all one language and this is only the beginning of what they will do and nothing that they propose to do now to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. Now, this is God judging humanity. This is definitely the judgment of humanity. God does not want humanity to be able to unite itself for wicked purposes. God does not want humanity to be able to set up its own one world religion. Remember, they wanted to reach to the heavens. All people, one language, one man-made religion, one supposed way to heaven. This is judgment. This is also grace. This is gracious judgment. Once again, you're looking at uh, a situation. Adam and Eve in the garden. God does not destroy them, but rather what does he do? He promises a saviour. There is judgment. The wages of sin are death. You will die. To dust you will return. There is the cursing of the earth. The fruit no longer just falls off the tree. You're going to have to labour. You're going to have to work. But he promises salvation. And so, what does God do? But restrain evil until the time of salvation. He restrains evil. Notice he uses whatever means he sees fit. Confusion of language. Division, separation. Arguments. Troubles. If that is the means by which God chooses to restrain evil, well then, that is how evil is to be restrained. This is what's called common grace quite often by theologians. Common grace. God is gracious to all of humanity in one way or another. He restrains evil in order that mankind may not destroy himself. Notice that phrase there, and nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. I just can't help but think of today. I just can't help but think of the world as we know it. I just can't help but think of the um, pervading influence of the internet on all the nations of the world. I just can't help but think of how it seems that once again all the people have decided to build themselves a tower to heaven, man-made religion, 
a way to get to eternal life. All things come from God. All things happen according to God's ordained will. If God has restrained the world through confusion and separation for a period of time, that is according to his will. If God is allowing the wicked people of the world to at this point in time unite, join causes, that is according to his will. Draw some comfort here. Now, we don't, we don't know, as it were, the days in which we live, apart from the fact that the end days began when Jesus ascended to heaven. The last days began when Jesus ascended to heaven. And the promise is that he may return at any time in our life or in the lives of other children, other people in the future. But understand this. If God chooses to separate them again, It's as easy as Yahweh coming down and saying, let's do it. Let's confuse them so that they may not understand one another's speech. Let's break up this world unity that is coming. Mankind is using his abilities for wickedness. God can bring this to a stop at any time in any way he pleases. But reading on at verse 8, so the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth and they left off building the city. Go out, multiply, fill the earth. The people did not go out, multiply and fill the earth. They found a nice spot and set up shop where they were. It's not that easy to disobey God. It's not that easy to not fulfill the will of God. Yahweh comes down, sees the people are not dispersing over the earth, are not filling the earth. And what does he do? (laughs) He disperses them over the earth. I told you to fill the earth. You would not go out into the earth. Now you're going out into the earth. God's will is accomplished. God's will for humanity is accomplished. He disperses them from there over the face of all the earth and they left off building the city. So many half-finished things in the world. Do you see them? All the time. I drive past them all the time, especially in the cities. Therefore, its name was called Babel. Now, that sounds like the word for confusion. Because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of of all the earth. Just turn to the book of Daniel, chapter 1. In Genesis 11, verse 2, we're told that they came to the land of Shinar and settled there, a plain in the land of Shinar. Daniel, chapter 1, starting at verse 1, in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. The land of Shinar, where the men had built a city. And Nebuchadnezzar was the king of Babylon. And the word is similar, Babel, Babylon. We're reading here a narrative of God's dealings with his enemies. The battle lines are drawn 
and the battle lines never went away. We find in the book of Revelation, fallen, fallen is Babylon, the great. So let's talk more about Babel or Babylon, that which unifies humanity, that which unifies mankind. Verse 4 of Genesis chapter 11, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves. Man-made religion. Man-made religion. Everybody has one. The atheist has one. A man-made religion. Everybody is seeking to reach out to some kind of eternity. The atheist tells them, tells himself that when he dies, he sleeps. It's finished. Pain is gone. Suffering is gone. It's all over. My existence is over. The atheist works very hard to convince themselves of that thought. What's the reward for their suffering? Sleep. To pass from consciousness. To have nothing more to worry about. Meaninglessness, so to speak. And we all know about all other kinds of man-made religions. Notice what they say. Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. Let's um, have a look at a few passages of scripture. We'll start with the book of Romans. Go to Romans chapter 10. Actually, let's try and get a little bit more big picture. Go to Romans chapter 8. Reading there at verse 29 of Romans chapter 8. For those whom he foreknew, those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. God has a plan. People indeed are, as it were, to reach heaven. But only certain people. Those whom he foreknew, those whom he loved from all of eternity. That's what that means. He didn't just know their names. God knows everybody's names. God knew everybody's names from all of eternity. To those who would try to argue that that foreknew, what that means is God looked down through history and saw the people who would believe in Jesus. And those are the ones that uh, it says he predestined to salvation. God knew everybody's names. If you want to take foreknew, if you want to take the idea of God's knowledge as what he knows, well, he knows everybody. Those whom he loved from the beginning, those whom he loved before all time, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And then at verse 30, you have what's often called the golden chain, predestined, called, justified, glorified, made to live in the presence of God, glorified, brought before God himself. 
Turn it over to Romans chapter 9. Paul goes on to speak of the security of the saints and then he speaks of his sadness that his people, the Israelites, were not generally converted but only some, a remnant. Let's read from Romans chapter 9 verse 6. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year I will return, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also then, but sorry, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, Though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Well, what is moulded? Say to its moulder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honourable use and another for dishonourable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory? Even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. Very quick summary of what Paul has said. Romans chapter 8, he introduces being foreknown, being predestined, being called, being justified, being glorified. He then goes on to argue that the reason that so many Jews have not received the gospel is that they were not foreknown, predestined, called. They were not called. This was not God's plan that all the Jews should believe. And notice his, his, um, his statement. Why is it like that? Look at verse 11. In order that God's purpose of election might continue. Verse 16 of Romans chapter 9. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. People argue. That's not fair. Romans chapter 9, verse 19, that's the argument. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Why does he still find fault? That's not fair. Are you saying to me, God has those whom he has foreknown, foreloved from the beginning of all creation, and those were the only people he was ever going to save? That's not fair. Surely everyone's got to get the same opportunity. That's not fair. Paul says, well, that's the question you're asking. Is that fair? 
Is it fair that God does things these ways? And Paul's only reply is, you don't have the right to answer back to God. That's the way God's doing things. Okay, in the light of that, I want you to turn now to Romans chapter 10. Brothers, starting at verse 1, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved, for I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart, Who will ascend into heaven? That is to bring Christ down. Or who will descend into the abyss? That is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Okay, we'll stop there. Paul argues for God's electing grace on the basis that man through obedience to law cannot achieve righteousness and cannot achieve justification. And he concludes his argument saying, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven. He's quoting from the book of Deuteronomy and we'll turn to that in just a moment. Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven or who will descend into the abyss. That is to bring Christ up from the dead. What does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Paul is basically saying that man-made religion based on the idea that someone can ascend to heaven is rejecting salvation through Jesus Christ. Man-made religion, based on the idea that there is something you can do that will make you righteous, is rebellion. Man-made religion, based on the idea that you, as it were, can build a tower with its top in the heavens is rejecting the word of grace. Let's have a look. Deuteronomy chapter 30. Deuteronomy chapter 30. Verse 11. Deuteronomy chapter 30 and we read from verse 11. This is the section that Paul quoted from. For this commandment that I command you today is not too hard for you, neither is it far off. It is not in heaven that you should say who will ascend to heaven for us and bring it to us, that we may hear it and do it. Neither is it beyond the sea that you should say who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us, that we may hear it and do it. But the word is very near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart so that you can do it. You see what Moses is saying? You might ask the question, hang on, Scott, did, 
did the Israelites have the gospel preached to them? And the answer is yes. They didn't have the gospel preached as explicitly as it's revealed in the New Testament, but even so, the answer is yes, the gospel was preached to them. The law convicted them of their sins and told them how they must live in the presence of God. And the ceremonial law brought before them such things as sacrificial lambs, scapegoats, etc., etc., and sin offerings. And Genesis told them that God had promised a saviour and all of the prophets from Moses on spoke of the coming saviour. They had the gospel preached to them. And so Moses says to them, do you want to live? You don't have to ascend to heaven to find out what it is that God is saying to you. The word has come down to us. It's near you. It's in your mouth. It's in your heart so that you can do it. No one has to climb climb to heaven. No one has to cross the oceans. The word is here. The law, which speaks of sin and judgment and salvation through propitiatory sacrifice. It's here. It's nearby. It's not far away. You don't have to... You don't have to build a tower to heaven. What was one of the accusations constantly made against the people of Israel once the nation had arrived in the promised land? We've been reading through as a church, one kings, two kings. We're in first chronicles. We'll go on to second chronicles. In the summaries of a king of Judah, what, what, what is one of the details that the author often points to? So-and-so was a good king. He purified the temple. He drove the prostitutes out. But the people did not cease to sacrifice on the high places. The people did not cease to practice man-made religion. High places. Let us go up high. Let us get closer to God. Surely if we make all the effort of getting to the mountaintop before we cut the throat of our land, surely that sacrifice will be more acceptable to God. The people continued to sacrifice on the high places. And that was always a word against the king, not for him, but against him. When man seeks to build himself his own religion, to ascend to heaven, as it were, to bring eternal life down from heaven to earth. Man always does this in rebellion against the word of God. Always. Creation preaches to humanity in what's called general revelation. The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. If man were running toward God, if it were the nature of man to desire God, it would be enough to look at the creation and know that God is the creator to set us on the right path. But that's not our desire. In this time, whilst this was happening, there were still the people of God in the world. According to um, the ages that were given, Noah was still alive. Noah, the preacher of righteousness. 
These people didn't build themselves a city and a tower because they were innocent. Oh, it would be wonderful if only God would speak to us. Oh, it would be wonderful if only God would be our God and we could be worshippers of God and be happy and have eternal life. That's not the way they were thinking. Moses, I'm sorry, Noah, continued as a preacher of righteousness. I think it's a safe assumption that there were others who were also preachers of righteousness because God never is without his witnesses upon the earth, never without his people upon the earth. When they chose to try and work their way up to heaven, as it were, and to bring heaven down to earth by means of their works, they chose it in complete and utter rebellion against the commandments of God. Mankind was rejecting the word of God. People claim that we can accomplish anything. We can do anything. We've got the science. We've got the knowledge. We've got technology. We've got computers. We've got it all. There is nothing that we can't accomplish if only everybody will unite and work together to get there. This whole thing that we're calling the COVID pandemic is one example of this. I can't help but think of it. It's all around us. It's one example of this. In the last 12 months, I'll just throw a number at you from um, the United States. In the last 12 months, how many people do you think died of TB? tuberculosis in the United States. 1.5 million. Now, you want to know something about tuberculosis? Wearing masks is an effective way to stop the spread of that disease. It is actually spread through droplets. And masks would actually stop the spread of that disease. And tuberculosis has been um, humming along quietly under the radar in a way in the USA now for many years. Sickness and death rate climbing. And no one is saying wear a mask concerning TB or as it was called in years gone by consumption. But everyone's being told to wear a mask because of a virus. Think about it. The virus, I mean the masks, are not effective in stopping the transmission of viruses. This is a, this is a cooked up media event. This is a cooked up media slash political event. And this desire to make everybody conform. One language, the same words. It's part of this desire of humanity to unite against God. We can destroy a disease. We can stop a virus. Is it even possible? I don't believe it is. I don't believe it is. You know, have they ever managed to stop the common cold from spreading? And this, desire, this virus spreads in exactly the same way? 
person to person. Through the dust that you breathe in, through the air that you breathe in, through the surfaces that you touch. But we can do it if you will conform. And have you noticed how angry people are getting with those who will not conform? (laughs) You won't conform? You won't speak the same language? You won't use the same words? You won't follow the same orders? Don't you understand we're building a city and a tower here? We're reaching for the heavens? Don't you understand? Salvation is in obeying our commandments. Didn't I tell you all mankind has a religion and all mankind is capable of religious fervour? And this has stirred up. It's stirred up religion. Not good religion, not biblical religion, not God-fearing religion. Another kind of religion. A tower-building religion. Let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. My answer is this, Jesus of Nazareth, by no other name can a man be saved. The Lord Jesus Christ is the only saviour and the only mediator between man and God. We cannot escape our mortality because the wages of sin is death. You want to deal with mortality? Deal with sin. You want to deal with sin? Go to Jesus. Sooner or later, somehow or other, they're going to push hard enough that we simply can't fit in anyway. Is someone not a Christian because they choose to wear the masks? No, they're not a Christian because they choose to wear the masks. Has someone taken the mark of the beast because they got the vaccinations? No, they haven't taken the mark of the beast because they got the vaccinations. That's not what I'm trying to say. What I'm trying to say is that this man-made religion is hostile to God-revealed religion. That the promises of this man-made religion preclude obedience to the promises and the commandments of God. One way or another, my friends, they're going to divide us off. It'll happen. As this nation comes under judgment, it will happen. They're going to get angrier and angrier with everyone who does not march to the beat of their drum. But my friends, we worship the one true living God. We worship the one who created all things. And if it comes to persecution, if it comes to suffering, his promise is not one hair of our heads shall be lost. We have that which cannot be taken away from us. We have answers. I know they don't like our answers. I know they don't agree with us. I know they think we're fools. That's okay. We're the people of God. God has given us his revelation of himself by his word. The Lord is with us. His word is near us. It's in our hearts. And so, my friends, fear not the schemings and the plottings of the world. Fear not, fear not the, uh, those who conspire. Fear not those who would do wicked and evil. 
Remember, the Lord laughs at them. He set his king on Zion's holy hill. We read in Psalm 2. The Lord rules. Even their rebellion is according to his rule. Even their rebellion, even their wickedness is according to his rule. It's being taken into account. They're not surprising God. They're not stopping God's will from being done. They're not changing the future history of the world. There's one God, one King, one Saviour. His name is the Lord Jesus Christ. And on the appointed day, he will return and gather to him, gather to himself his own. And they will there spend, from then on, I should say, spend the rest of eternity in his presence. Gazing upon him, worshipping him, serving him, speaking with him, being spoken to by him. The future's ours. The future's ours. Don't worry too much about the world and the way it's going. We serve the living God and this is his world. Jesus shall reign where'er the sun does its successive journeys run. His kingdom stretch from shore to shore till moons shall wax and wane no more. Let's close in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you that we do not have to strive to reach heaven. No tower need be built. You indeed have sent your only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. You are a gracious and merciful God showing steadfast love to thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sins. Our Father, in these days, in these times, the way things are, May we always remember to have our eyes upon Jesus, to look full in his wonderful face, that the things of this earth would grow strangely dim, that we indeed might live in the light of eternity. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.